Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is just around the corner from launching into the world. You can pre-order a copy right now wherever you are in the world. Just head to the link in the show notes below in order to get your own copy. It's available in Kindle, hardcover, and it will soon be available in audio book, which I will be narrating. I'm very excited about that. Uh, But hope you guys can get a copy. Hope you support the show, myself and yourself as well, because that's what the, the book is really, really speaking to. Thank you all very much. All right, time to enjoy the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Storybox. Today, my friends, we're going to go on an adventure. I've got the wonderful and awesome Calvin D. Sun, who is a doctor, believe it or not. He's a clinical assistant professor and board certified physician specializing in emergency medicine. He's a public speaker. He's an activist. He's a choreographer and entrepreneur based in New York City. He has worked at multiple underserved emergency departments and large-scale events around the country, most notably during the COVID-19 pandemic, which we do discuss during this conversation, which may or may not be somewhat controversial now, who knows, but I always enjoy having wide-ranging conversations regardless of whether or not I agree with even though it's a, it's a doctor's point of view or whatever it is. So I always believe in the power of questioning and I always will. So if I agree or disagree, I'm always willing to question and learn from people who may or may not know more than I do or, and still have an opinion nonetheless. But anyway, if you don't agree with anything that Calvin says, that is totally fine. You're entitled to, to that as well. It was more I wanted to ask him from his personal experience going through COVID-19 and and what actually transpired from his personal point of view and much, much more. But that's just part of the conversation, which is towards the end. 
But for the most part, the very beginning of the conversation, we talk about Calvin. Now, Calvin is someone I think you guys are going to really resonate with to some degree. He is also the founder and CEO of the Monsoon Diaries. He's a, a blog turned travel community that has taken hundreds of readers to 190 plus countries in the plus in the past 10 years, sorry, including North Korea, Nauru, Greenland, and Antarctica, to name but a few. The Monsoon Diaries has since been featured on BBC News, ABC News, MSNBC, TED, National Geographic, and USA Today. And he's actually written a memoir, a new book, which has launched the same day my book launched, which is just pretty cool, if I do say so myself. The Monsoon Diaries is the finished account of Dr. Calvin's son, an emergency room doctor who worked tirelessly on the front lines in multiple hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic, drawing upon the lessons he learned from his adventures traveling to more than 190 countries in 10 years, as well as the grief he experienced as a teen when his father died. Uh, Calvin shares his journey from growing up as a young Asian American in New York City to his calling first to medical school and then to the open road. You can go and get a copy of his book if this conversation uh, interests you in the slightest. Links will be in the show notes below for that. I've read his book. It is quite an interesting read, we'll say that. Uh, it takes you on a lot of different adventures, which I no doubt enjoy. And there's quite a few stories in there as well. So I'll link it in the show notes below if you want to get it. Also, my friends, my very first book is Out in the World, The Path of an Eagle. It's there. Wow. Thank you all so much for your support and those who actually got it. If you haven't, you can go and do that now. The link will be in the show notes below too to make it easy for you. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Calvin D. Sun. Thank you for having me. Let's make yeah. this a, at the end of the episode, make them do a two book purchase deal, a group discount. No, nah, I mean, today, today's about you. I don't want to <laughs> harp on too much of my, my stuff at all, but congratulations on the book. Uh, before we dive into your story, why you do what you do and writing this book, because I know it's no easy thing to do. What does success look like for you? It depends on the person you're asking. And I think success is an arrival. It depends on whether you feel like you are recognizing that you've already arrived where you needed to be, or you achieved something externally that, you, that helps you define yourself better and understand who you are truly in the moment. I don't want to define success as something too external because then you're always constantly chasing success and you're never satisfied. I think the idea of Profound success with the capital S is when you see you for who you are already, that you've already arrived and you've done the work internally to recognize that you already have everything that you need to be, to be happy, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled. But if it takes external environmental factors to achieve that insight and clarity, then we, we should work towards that. I mean, this, this is not a, a pitch to not do anything and meditate all day, which is also good. 
but to create an environment around yourself and whether that be an, a financial achievement or some a, a level of professional achievement to help you see what you already have in that success. How did you come to find this actual definition for yourself, man? The rat race of constantly chasing things was only creating more disappointment and stress and feeling of a lack that this world has been structured to encourage us to always look for things that we don't have in order to keep the engine running. And while that does keep a whole society running towards a certain direction, it takes away the agency of defining our own personal narratives and being able to define for ourselves what is our lives and what is other people's lives. Am I making someone else richer or am I making my life richer by doing this one thing? We forget to question why we're doing something in the moment because we're so swept up by the narrative of trying to chase something that we don't have when the answer may be we already have it and the work should be done inside rather than outside. It becomes this crazy cycle, right? Roller coaster ride. You just constantly going through the same motions all the time, chasing things that don't really fulfill you. They may satisfy for a little bit of the time, but they don't ultimately fulfill you in the end. Right. It's the idea of being on a roller coaster, as you say, and then getting so bored of the roller coaster, coaster, you're wondering, are there more turns? Why are we not dropping fast enough? Is there more? Is there more? And that's the dopamine. Mm. The dopamine, dopamine, they exist so that you get satisfied for a temporary moment, but then you crave more of it. And then you become a slave. You think that you're free to do anything, but you're actually a slave to your temptations. When true freedom is being free from those temptations to know that you're not needing to do those things in the first place, that you can actually enjoy the roller coaster as it is without having to know what it looks like ahead or that it needs any more twists and turns to feel better about that roller coaster. Just enjoy the present. You're already on this ride. I say not being a slave to dopamine at all. Yeah. Just enjoy it as much Tethered. as you can. Just enjoy um, it. Which is which is interesting because a dopamine is a, is can be an addictive substance. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't mind it when it makes me feel when I have it, but then when it's gone, then oh, the more feeling of, it. of craving it, you want more of it, it, then you realize you're not really living your life. You're living by the rules of this arbitrary chemical secretion in your brain. It's crazy, isn't it? How we've got that chemical that sort of we create it and then uh, emotions and experiences sort of dictate the level of how much we can actually get. Does that make sense? Like more and more of it. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I don't want to put on my doctor hat, but we become our own slaves. Like we create the problems that enslave us. And that's what we say about environments. We also are in control of creating an environment that can compel us to go to work every day and make us think this is our purpose to make someone else's career richer, to make other rich people richer. When we can also change that every passing minute is another chance to turn it around and redefine our environments to be like, no, let me work for myself or little or shift more on working more for myself and focus on what I need to, you know, already cherish uh, or cherish what I already have. So who is Calvin's son? I'm just a guest in this universe. Uh, this, 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 it's Calvin's son is a, a name applied to this body that somehow my soul has, you know, taken rent for 
this lifetime. We're paying my rent, we're paying dues, death is my landlord, and I'm just enjoying the brief time that I have on this planet before the next step, whichever that looks like. And in the meantime, Calvin's son is this label that we, you know, assign to this person talking right now that you're listening to that's enjoying the ride and hoping to make the world as good as a place uh, for Calvin's son or the, and the people that are around him that, you know, or I love. We're getting uh, rather philosophical here. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is my jam. So 12 years ago, you mentioned that you started the Monsoon Diaries, which basically saw you going from country to country almost. So what was the inspiration behind that? Was it mainly because you realized you're in this rat race and you wanted to have some sort of freedom? Because you are a doctor. I think it's all what I had said about who is Calvin's son. I mean, we're all living on borrowed time and this temporary time and this vastness of the universe. And I didn't really realize that until one of my first inflection points was when my father died and I was 19 years old from a sudden heart attack. And that was a first lesson in which I didn't really realize or was able to intellectualize at the time. I mean, my dad died, so I just felt it. But looking back, what I felt was that we are all living on borrowed time. We're all tenants in this, in these bodies and these existences. And the best to do instead of trying to repress things or ignore things is to rather honor and cherish every waking moment that we have. And those events like my father's death or a pandemic that happens to all of us is a reminder for all of us to, to make the most out of this present waking moment. And when I was enduring that, I had created this identity for myself that I thought was going to be permanent after my father's death. That this was the time for me to be free finally and think for myself and not have to do what my overbearing father made me want to do. I mean, as I said, it was the worst and best summer of my life. And part of the identity was concluding without actually having done so that travel was not meant for me. <laughs> I had even left New York City ever. I was born and raised in New York and I felt the whole world could come to me. And I had surmised in my independence that what's the point in spending all this money and time to visit places that I'm not going to live in anyway. If I wanted to travel, I could just go to a neighborhood in New York. If I go to Korea, I go to Cape Town. If I go to China, I go to Chinatown. If I want to go to East Europe, I go to some parts of Brooklyn. But then when you are in that freedom, you kind of go in a runner or muck of not knowing whether these thoughts are coming from you or what you're trying to apply to yourself, or is it a response to fear of the unknown? And I decided to become a bartender instead of a doctor. And I was very happy. And 12 years ago, I was at a bar and I met this person who never quite left my bar. She stuck around, kept ordering drinks, kept wanting to talk. And one thing led to another where she challenged me to come join her on a trip to Egypt a few days later. And at the time, I didn't know how to charmingly tell her I didn't like to travel. So I kept on saying, oh, I don't have any time or any money. And she kept pushing me, or at least the subject was brought up often enough that night where I eventually gave in and did the best I could to find a way of reconciling that I didn't want to travel, which was I'll go if tickets are under $800. And they were like 2000 at the time because I liked her enough to check. And, you know, 
one thing led to another. And the next day we were still hanging out. And then later that night, we checked it one more time and tickets had dropped from 2000 to $650 round trip. And obviously I was not happy that I was now put in a position I didn't want to be in, nor did I expect to or was prepared for. But I decided that I'd rather be $650 poorer, capitalize on a great deal, by the way, and be a man of my word rather than flake on the promises I made to myself, let alone a complete stranger. Because if I had done the latter, then I would have started a habit of constantly not follow through on the promises I made or the bets I've made. And how would I know if I didn't like travel unless I did it? And then 36 hours later, I was in Egypt looking at this girl and I'm like, who are you? What's your name <laughs> again? And, you know, I ended up spending two days with her. She had to hang out with her. It was a family trip. I didn't know that, but I ended up spending the next three weeks alone. And the first week I hated it because I was alone. I didn't know anyone. I, nobody knew me. I couldn't understand anything. I didn't bring anything. I didn't pack that much with me. And all I could think of was I'm going to die. 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 And then the second week I was still alive and I was kind of like realizing that I was getting the hang of this. But it wasn't until the third week when I realized why people love to travel. So it took me three weeks to be dragged kicking and screaming into an activity that I now get paid for to do and take other people on trips when they already love traveling at a way younger age with much less of an effort than I ever did at the age of 23 when I started traveling 12 years ago. You got the travel bug. It hit me, but it took me three weeks to hit me. And I realized why it took me three weeks, because the first two weeks, I didn't like, in response to your earlier question, who is Calvin's son? Didn't like him. Mm. Scared of being alone with him. Didn't like the fact that every waking moment in a foreign country, I could not talk to anyone but who was Calvin's son. This, whether it's me as in me or this crazy roommate in my head that's been telling me and spitting fears of you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And this fear of not wanting to travel. I mean, the, the, the declaration I didn't want to travel because of a fear. And then it took me two, two more weeks, the third week for me to be able to look at myself and say, you're not so bad. In fact, you're still alive because of you. Yeah, I, I think I can trust you, who, this person named Calvin's son. And I came back from that trip a little more comfortable and starting to learn to become my own best friend and become friends with even the fear of the unknown. Yeah. of things like traveling. I am yet to, I mean, I've been to Vanuatu, but, um, and New Caledonia and, and that country, but that was on a boat, uh, with, with the family and I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was not happy at all, but that was a different, I guess, different version of me too. I guess I hated myself back in 2017. Um, yeah. and now at the age that I'm at, and the, and the kind of person that I'm at these days is I would love to go overseas again. I would love to go to America. I love to go to Europe and just finally get out of my own head a little bit and just experience what life has to offer in those countries, the people, the food, the environment, all those things, because that is another experience that, uh, I guess I took it for granted when, when the pandemic hit as well. I'm like, you know what? I, I kind of feel a little bit saved in a way. And then also um, I felt a little bit let down. So I'm like, oh, I can't travel. But then in the same instance, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I have to for a while now. 
but then we're allowed to travel now and I want to. And I guess I'm getting that little bit of an itch. Like it's time for me to to go out a little bit and explore the world. But aside from all that, my man, I want to go back to, let me come back to your, your travel adventures in just a moment. I want to go back a little bit to, you mentioned that your father was a little bit overbearing. And then when you lost him, it was the best and worst day of your life. Uh, firstly, what was your relationship like with your dad? Tumultuous, like Sisyphus pushing on a boulder. Wow. I like to say it was the worst and best day of my life because that's how I've chosen to reframe it. Looking back at the time, it was the worst day of my life. I didn't know how else to consider it because the feeling of pushing a boulder against him all your life. And that is the definition, how overbearing he was. He controlled and dictated who I should be, what career I should take. And I am grateful to him, or at least I've chosen to frame it as I am grateful to him for putting a roof over my head, for providing me an education and even a structure of what I could be and the sense of discipline. But at the same time, the lack of a love language and the emotional connection, what I needed from a father to provide that emotional baseline that would have maybe a little more well-adjusted and also feeling a little more of a belonging on this planet, uh, the lack thereof was just felt like a rock. So I was pushing against this rock. His presence was made known, but I cannot commune with this rock. It's not a rock that I can hug. It has a lot of jagged edges and it's sharp, it's heavy. It's not a warm rock. It's not hugging me back. Mm. And then all of a sudden it disappears, suddenly dies. I'm going to an argument one morning. I felt like he was fine. He had all the power in the world to control me. And then the next minute he went on a treadmill to blow off some steam from the stress of arguing with me and then collapsed from a sudden heart attack and never came back. And it just felt like the boulder disappeared. I stumbled over myself on this hill. Where's the boulder? I get around and this feeling of discomfort, I am free. I can now go up and down the hill and left and right. But having defined myself and my entire life in relation to this push and pull against this boulder, this other objects, this direct object, now having lost that meaning, what else can I define myself as? And that feeling of freedom, while looking back, was a good thing overall for me to define myself, at the time felt overwhelming. Just like what we discussed earlier when I was in Egypt and totally by myself for the first time, it was overwhelming to be left alone with your own faculties and having to confront who you are and having the only person that you can talk to is yourself. And I hope you better like yourself when that happens because it's an otherwise uncomfortable conversation you're going to have if you haven't either talked to yourself or you don't like the idea of yourself. Yeah. Do you have any regrets back then? He had told me that he was proud of me for the first time a week before he died. Now that reminds me of the book that Joan Didion wrote, a year of magical thinking where I think she alludes to how her late husband had talked and acted a certain way a week before he suddenly died that suggested that deep down subconsciously his cells even knew, but he was caught off guard and surprised that he was saying and acting in, in that way uh, before he died. But she felt that something in him knew subconsciously that brought that out. And maybe that's the way I chose to read the book because I use that as a, a form of solace to apply to how my father uh, approached me the week before he died. 
saying and doing things that he's never done before. And even I remember him being surprised that it came out of his mouth, that he was proud of me. And maybe the regret wasn't that he said it or wish he said that earlier because I can't control for that. But rather the regret was that I didn't push him hard enough to explain himself before he died. He never explained why. He never elaborated on that. In fact, he probably said, oh, I'll tell him later. And then he would be gone. And I kind of wish that I could hear why or how or what. And the hard part was when I was cleaning out his closet, I found the diaries he wrote to my brother, who's 14 years older, different mothers, same father. And he wrote to him when he and my brother's mother were divorced, how much he missed my brother and how he wished he was there for him and how proud of, of how proud he was of my brother growing up the way he was without you know a family being together physically. And that was also hurtful in that regret. Maybe I wish I didn't find it because I now know what my dad was capable of, of writing it with such love to a son that those diaries did not exist for me. And when he had said that he was proud of me, I knew what he, you know, now knowing what he was capable of telling me why he was proud of me. I wish I had just pushed on him harder. But at the time, I didn't know about the diary, so I didn't push on him because I didn't think he was capable of verbalizing emotional love the way he did to my brother in his diaries. Did that sort of make you angry at all? I think this is a confusion of anger mixed in with sadness. And I don't want to say empathy or sympathy or pity or any of those negative connotations, but there is a sadness. And although I respect my father, I feel that I feel sad that he couldn't reach me the way he could have while he was still alive, knowing that he knew he was capable of doing it because he did that with my brother. The, the diaries. And I don't know how much he had to hold back on himself, but I'm sure that must have been felt, must have felt imprisoned and, and just confining. And I live with openness and saying what's on my mind and, you know, being as honest as I can be with my loved ones, even if that means to show vulnerability. But I think his inability to show vulnerability to his own son, knowing that he could and he was capable of it with another son must've been so constraining. And that's why I feel sadness rather than it anger. Didn't show it with you. No, that's the thing. So family dynamics, man, they're, they're wild. Uh, they can be really, really wild. Um, but I wanted to ask you as well, moving from that dynamic with your father to what was your relationship like with your mom? Was it something similar or was it a bit better? I like to joke that some people have, one tiger parent at most and is a good cop, bad cop dynamic. I had two tiger parents. They're all both bad cop, bad cop. They were working in tandem or two opposite extremes of the same end of the extreme, which was violent and violent. And she wasn't the warm, loving, you know, soothing antithesis to my father. Both of them were away most of the time. When they were at home, it was pretty explosive. I was raised by a family of babysitters, just different babysitter, different babysitter, different ba babysitter. I mean, I'm grateful that they put a roof over my heads and they paid for people to show me different kinds of love and care, but it was always like a rotating group of people that I didn't really have time to develop bonds with, except for one person, 
that stayed stuck around because I liked her so much. And she provided me, and I thank her in my book, she provided me what uh, love could look like to someone as impressionable as myself when I was the age from two to six. And that said, my mother was at uh, a motel in New Jersey that she worked on during the week and came back on the weekends. Sometimes it would be flipped. And my dad was always at his job in Connecticut, came back on the weekends, worked there during the week, and I was in New York City. So barely got to see them. But when I did see them, it would just be intense. And it would be that kind of intensity that I would call warm. It would be hot. Yeah. Is she still alive today? Yeah, she has Parkinson's disease. So that summer when my father died, she had also been formally diagnosed with Parkinson's. So a lot of it was happening all at once. When it rains, it pours. So she, at the day of his death, said, I can't be taken care of by a college teenager. And she went on to live with her parents in Queens. So I was totally by myself that night. I slept alone that night. A completely empty house. Mate, man, draw me a vet. Yeah, I went to work the next morning because that's how lonely I was. I couldn't reach my brother because he was on a date. So I didn't get to reach him until the day after. And he was kind of distraught that he didn't get to know that the night of when it happened. But, you know, he also is 14 years older. He was living on his own. He has his own life. So I was literally living alone that summer. But that's when I created a new family. I was sleeping on floors of a lot of my friends' dorms, the ones that stayed over the summer to do a summer studies program at our undergrad at our uni. And that's where I spent most of my time. And you weren't, you were starting to be a doctor at this, at this point, right? It was my father who wanted me to become a doctor. So I was already enrolled in a pre-medical studies program. But after he died, I saw that as an opportunity to just bomb it all, <laughs> focus more on becoming class vice president and student council and, you know, all the other leadership organizations that I was part of, uh, bartending teaching mixology in the bartending agency at my undergrad. That's what I was focusing on. Dancing and choreography, social justice activism. And my grades plummeted after he died. And I was okay with that because I thought that was a sign that I, I was not meant to become a doctor. And the irony is I ended up becoming a doctor. And there's a whole big story to behind that thinking process. Well, please tell me, man. <laughs> So the problem with thinking is that, man, thinking is hard. But when you start thinking, you get into this, this run of a ruck again. It just goes and brings you these thoughts and you have to honor them because they must be coming from somewhere. And I was meditating. I was working out. I was doing all these things. I wasn't traveling yet, but I was thinking all oh, these thoughts. They're just random thoughts. They'll come and go. They're not really part of who I am. But I couldn't shake off this notion that this decision not to become a doctor wasn't really coming from me. That by deciding and being relieved, quote unquote, that I wasn't going to be a doctor was still in response to my father. It was still in relation to rebelling against my father or the stereotype or the expectation of society that I must become a doctor, that me refusing to do so is still me tethered. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To those forces and influences, and I wasn't really thinking for myself. So what if I'm actually meant to become a doctor? And I wouldn't know, and I'm denying myself this possibility because of my father. Then they get to control me for the rest of my life. Yeah. But now I was running in circles. You can even hear me like running in circles thinking about it now. What if I became a doctor? Then I gave in, have given in, and my dad would have the last laugh. What was coming from me truly? And it was until the, it was not until the, the travel bet that I lost the bet to Egypt, where I was dragged kicking and screaming for three weeks to love something that for three weeks prior, I did not think I would ever love when I realized I don't know shit. And the conclusion I had made for myself may not be right. So who would I go to for that? Nobody but myself. It's like the poison cup scene from The Princess Bride. Both of them could be poison. One of them could be poison. You just got to do it. Just You can't just hang in stasis and wait for things to happen. So the Egypt story, the wager inspired me to make another wager, which was to apply to every single medical school with my, my failing, like my grades went from good to bad. So it wasn't even a good trajectory of my grades showing improvement. So below average entrance exams score and hoping to get rejected everywhere, have that box checked off and know I'm not meant to be a, to become a doctor and say, at least I tried. But then because of that honesty, like that movie Office Space, Mm-hmm. one school took me and they were like, we, we want to take a chance on you. You're different. You speak with such candor and honesty that we don't see in other medical school applicants that, you know, you are representative of some the kind of trajectory of kind of doctors we want to create a more humanistic, real doctor rather than someone that studies all the time. They essentially told me that I was an imposter. I mean, some of us suffer from imposter syndrome, this medical school confirmed that I was the imposter. But then one thing led to another. And I promised myself I will keep doing this because I have an opportunity now to take up that most people will kill for. The girl at the bar saw in me a potential to travel. I mean, maybe she just liked me. But I like to believe that she saw potential in me in, to be able to travel that I didn't see for myself. And these, this medical school saw a potential in me to becoming a doctor that I didn't see in myself. And I realized there was all these things that people were seeing in me that I wasn't fully appreciating because I think I was scared of what I could live up to. I was scared of myself. So I decided to continue with med school and stick with the traveling and the other activities and say, I'll keep doing this until I fail out. And I can check that box off and know I'm not going to become a doctor. But I realized what was happening was that traveling was keeping me alive in med school. And medical school was giving me that fire that was burning in my ass to keep traveling as much as I could. Yeah. One could not have existed without the other. Mm. And I love uh, how you brought up the Princess Bride. So yeah. just think all this time 
it was your cup that was poisoned, not his or something like that. And he goes, they were both poisoned. I spent an entire lifetime building up resilience or whatever it is. It's one of my favorite movies, man. So yeah, you know what? Got, in, got into my good graces with that. Uh, I wanted to ask you moving towards your, your now book, you, you write a book, which is no easy thing to do. Congratulations on actually achieving number one, becoming a doctor, number two, writing a book and number three, getting past the craziness of the whole COVID pandemic. But I wanted to, my curiosity is running wild here a little bit with, did you find that while you're on your travels over the years, did you find that that sort of helped you prepare at all for what was to come? Like helping you navigate personalities, people at all, the illness? There's no better teacher than what the world can teach you. It is through travel and making a habit of traveling in the context that I did. And I think we go back to the beginning of the podcast when we talk about controlling your environments. I didn't just travel. I traveled while as a full-time medical student and then as a resident and then as an attending. Every month on average, I would do a trip, whether it be two days in a country that was closer or you know, a week in a farther away region or even 20 hours in halfway across the world. I did 20 hours in Hong Kong. Flew 20 hours to get there, spent 20 hours, flew 20 hours back, left on a Friday, came back on a Monday, right before class started. And that was an impactful trip that changed my life, actually. To realize that, that it is through travel that readjusts and realigns everything that you are struggling with back home. And it was the environment when I was able to travel as much as I did while I was a full-time student that allowed me to see what was possible, what can be done in a 48 hour period, a 72 hour period, what can be done in the weekend. It allowed me to be able to interact with many different people in a short amount of time. And when people started signing up for my trips and wanting to come along and me not saying no and taking them along, helped me understand how Forrest Gump was able to do it. As the autistic character that he was, he accomplished so much because he only lived and invested in the present. He was so authentic and genuine. And I know it's a fictional story, but a lot of it speaks to truth and why we love that movie so much. It's because movies like Office Space is we are so afraid of embracing our honest selves because society has dictated that that will only get us in trouble. When we actually do it, it's like Indiana Jones stepping on that, that, that in the, the Holy Grail movie when he can't see the bridge and he just has to have faith and he steps on it and it's an invisible bridge. It's kind of like that. Once you touch the burner and you realize it's not that hot, that's when you know that uh, you already have everything it takes to live the best life of your dreams. You don't need anything external. So traveling wasn't me chasing something external. It wasn't me trying to attain something that I didn't have. It was to step away from the painting, literally and figuratively, and look from the painting from afar and say, you know what? This is what life looks like when I see it from a different vantage point. And it's inviting intentional chaos into yourself, not hurting other people, into yourself so that you can play around with your puzzle pieces of life and see them from a different angle so that you can better tackle the things that were bothering you back home. And I'm better able to do that with the help of a habit of traveling. Wow. And it's kind of like uh, brushing your teeth every day. You go out, have a great night out. You party with your friends. It's four or five o'clock in the morning. You watch the sunrise with someone that you like. And then you drop you off home and you're looking at your toothbrush. And he's like, no, I just want to go to sleep. 
And then you find yourself still brushing your teeth, changing into your pajamas. And those of you who do that, no matter how hard it is, no matter how many excuses you give yourself for not wanting to do it, you still do it. You are now looking back and you are so grateful that you have teeth and that you slept comfortably and not in your clothes. And these habits add up. There's nothing bigger than the smallest of things to get you to a point. So when I travel and make a habit of traveling as a, you know, with my full-time job or when I was a student, I will be on airplanes. I'm like, what am I doing? That's a first world problem. I don't mind that. I got a really good flight. Deal. I'm always getting good flight deals or using miles. I'm not trying to spend too much money, but I'm always knowing that, you know, people spend way more on yoga retreats and brunches or trips to Vegas or ski trips, all of which I still love to do, but traveling was what I needed to be able to say, I can come back and say, I'm grateful. I'd, I'd done this no matter how hard it was when I got into the airplane, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. When I come back, I'm always saying, yeah, I'm so grateful to have experienced that. And now I can go back into my daily life at home with much more of a purpose. How did you feel when the pandemic did hit and now all of a sudden you're grounded, you can't actually travel anywhere? It was a shell shock. And I knew that going in when we had landed that I was not going to travel for a very long time. I was mentally and emotionally preparing for that. And the difficult part was not knowing when it was going to end as it was unfolding. The thing is that people don't, not, not everyone heals by talking about it or by exercise or by, you know, writing about it. Everyone heals in different ways. And for me, healing was traveling to actually physically distance myself to see the painting from far away rather than all the brushstrokes up close to be like, oh, this is what life is and it's not so bad. Or let me have a better appreciation for the life I back home and come back fully mentally recharged and excited. And lacking that during a time that I was now expected to work even harder and with more peril and with very little PPE was the unforgiving part that there was no ability for my cup to be refilled as quickly. And I didn't know when that was going to, you know, that the denial of that refill uh, tank was going to be able to be offered to me again, because we didn't know when the pandemic was going to end. Yeah. Have you had COVID yet? I haven't tested positive for it. You haven't, you managed to skip it. No, I've tested positive for the flu one time, but that was it. <laughs> You're one of the lucky ones, man. I don't know. I think it's from all the traveling and exposing myself to all the foods and environments and air. And, you know, maybe it's not, you know, washing my hands. No, you should wash your hands. Always wash your hands. Maybe it's eating the food off the floor or your immune system. The 20, 30 second rule. Yeah. I, I, I do take risks with eating and trying new things and, here we are. I, I, I have a stomach made out of a steel, I guess. Here's, a, here's an interesting question. It might be somewhat contentious, but just yeah. be honest with me as, as much as you can. So natural immunity versus vaccination, man-made stuff. What's your, in, in your experience, having traveled the world, having the immune system that you've got, when it comes down to a, a pandemic like this, what's your thoughts on it? It's not mutually exclusive concepts. They are lovers in a dance. You need both. I wear clothes that are man-made, 
keeps me warm, but I think I can run around naked in 20. I have streaked in Antarctica and did just fine. I mean, my feet hurt a little bit, but I think I need man-made shoes for that. But I think if I streak long and hard enough, I would develop strong enough calluses, but that's no way to live. And, you know, they're complementary things. We need both to be able to live in this dangerous, chaotic planet. We haven't built a world otherwise. And we've been, you know, vaccinated so many times with so many different things and far more dangerous types of vaccines than mRNA ones with much greater risks, live attenuated, you know, vaccines, things with live viruses. We had smallpox vaccines that we're bringing back now and people are doing just fine. And I think we've put way worse things in our bodies, alcohol, (laughs) you know, all the, the processed foods that we had, that's way worse. I think that vaccines only serve to help us in the long run. I mean, I always have seen them as like seatbelts. I've seen people decapitated from seatbelts, getting to much more injuries than seatbelts. Doesn't mean you don't put on a seatbelt still knowing the risks it can cause, especially knowing that seatbelts hurt more people than vaccines ever has had. And, you know, seatbelts don't decrease your risk of car accidents. They just lower your chances of being hospitalized. And I think that's uh, what vaccines do, especially with someone with strong enough natural immunity. Don't you want to know that you did your best? Yeah. Oh, for sure, man. Like I, I totally understand where you're coming from as well. My other question for you is if someone has a reaction to a vaccine at all, does that mean we should still continue giving them vaccines or should we allow yeah. their body to naturally adapt? It depends on what you're getting vaccinated for. So if you're getting vaccinated for something like Ebola and you are nowhere going to be next to West Africa, then you don't need the vaccine for Ebola. If you get a reaction for rabies and you're never going to be a veterinarian or you hate animals, then what's the point of getting the rabies vaccine? Then don't get the vaccine. COVID doesn't give you that privilege. It's everywhere. It killed my grandfather. It killed my friends. You don't know enough about it. So you can either choose a reaction to a vaccine that we have therapies for and reversing that reaction, a lot of antihistamines, epi monitor situations, or you choose to get the reaction of an unknown disease like COVID or long COVID. We don't know enough about it. So if you choose to bet on COVID, then then you're in team COVID, you're team pandemic. Or you can be choose to go with a mild reaction that can be managed, that we have therapies for that are far safer, numbers-wise, far more people died, died of COVID. And we're already three years into the vaccine. And still, I'm, I'm checking my watch. They said, what, wait five years, wait five years? It's already been three years. Actually, more than five years for people who've gotten mRNA vaccines. It's been around for 40 years, let alone the, the first like research subjects for COVID, the, the test subjects for COVID that they had early on. That's been only been four years and still no mass die-offs. But plenty of unvaccinated people have died from COVID. What's your your viewpoint regarding how much of it is more actually fear-based versus, okay, this is actually a serious illness because I've had COVID twice. My family's had COVID several times and we've all been relatively fine. I've got friends of mine that are unvaccinated. They've had it. They've been fine. While I've got also friends that are vaccinated once again, they're fine too. But how much of it do you think is more of a case of in the initial stages and even now as well? Because I'm constantly seeing in the news 
oh, there's new wave, new wave, got to do this, got to do that, all that stuff. How much do you think of it is, okay, we've got to live with it now. It is here to stay. It's not going anywhere versus just the actual fear of it itself. Like it is a serious disease, that sort of thing. Does it make sense? Yeah, I think that you have every right to decide whatever you want to do, but you have to also accept the consequences when this virus that we, we don't know enough then evolves again or mutates again and starts killing people. It's, it has already killed people. It had, has killed my college friend. It has killed my grandfather. And has, I've lost a nurse. I lost two nurses to it, like I know him personally. And therefore, it, it has killed people. It has made people very sick. And I know a lot of patients who have come to us with long COVID and they can't function. I think they're, they're like... One ten percent of the workforce will be you know, lost wages, to, or the economy will be lost to long COVID. These are very real people, and we can't deny that existence. We may be the ninety percent. Your friends that you know they're unvaccinated do fine, and you're ninety percent is a good thing. But ten percent is one in ten. Do we really want to take chances on that? And to be vaccinated or to take to do our part in minimizing the risk of the disease, I can at least go to bed knowing that I did my best to protect grandma. If one day your friend dies of COVID or your friend's grandmother dies of COVID and they found out or family finds out they weren't vaccinated or they could have done a little more to take precautions or take it more seriously, that guilt of grandma's death or their college friend's death, in my case, will be on them. And if you can live with that for the rest of your life, then that's the kind of person you are. It's not my life that I'm living. I know I've done my best to take care of my loved ones the best I can, even it may be a little inconvenience to myself, knowing that I've never tested positive for COVID or gotten sick with it. And I've had no PPE for as much of it. I still want to put on my seatbelt. And I'm a guy that sometimes don't put on a seatbelt. But man, I would feel really guilty if I got into a car accident one day, got shot out of the car and killed a four-year-old with my body, knowing that I could have protected her life by wearing a seatbelt that was pretty inconvenient, knowing that a seatbelt can harm me sometimes because I've taken care of patients who've been harmed by seatbelts. It's about doing your best and no, no, living with the consequences when you know that you didn't. Yeah. I think what you're speaking to is more aligned with personal responsibility than anything else, in my opinion. Um, and I think that is, at the end of the day, I, I always think that putting something in your body like a vaccine should always come down to choice, whether or not, like you, you look at your own health to see whether or not you want to do it. If you don't, by all means, but then at the same time, do what you can to protect not only yourself, but those around you from something. Because yeah, I know I'm not a doctor, but for me in particular, secondly, I am vaccinated. So, but then at the same time, I just want to be mindful of my own health. Like the risks involved, that sort of thing. I want to be fully educated, not by the media, but by actual science. That's my- yeah, no, I, I think that people should want to get vaccinated by forcing anything on anyone. You're going to just get a backlash and yeah. people are going to start burning down hospitals and you're just doing yourself harm when you don't fully explain why it's important. Trying to take care of a kid and you tell them, you got to do this, you got to eat all these things, but not explain why, that kid is going to rebel. And that's on you. You should have known better because you know more than your kid growing up. 
It's your responsibility to meet them where they are and get them to want to eat the healthy thing and do the right thing for themselves. So it becomes holistic and organic and sustainable rather than forcing anything on anyone that doesn't do anyone any good. So totally with you on that, you know, it's about a responsible way of communicating a need for something that is important for the community. For sure, man. And I appreciate you sharing all this knowledge and all this, your viewpoints on things. I think it is, it is valuable still. Like I'm not against vaccinations at all. Like I've never been against vaccinations. For me in particular, I just think it always should come down to an individualized choice. Mandates, nah. We had the mandates here in Australia and you should, I don't know if you saw it, man. It just went absolutely nuts. We had some of the harshest lockdowns here. We had, and we're in a first world country as well. Like to look at all that, the, the amount of people that lost jobs over it, the amount of people, like it's their livelihood too. They've still got to live. And now they're sort of, they're reversing everything. So it was like, what was the point back then? They lost their job. Now they can get their job back again. It's like why put through why put through put someone through that back then if all you're going to do eventually is basically go back to the same way it was before. <laughs> it doesn't make too much sense to me. There's, yeah, I'm not in public policy, but there's an art to timing when it comes to mandates. If you tell me Ebola has become COVID level, you know, infectiousness, Ebola sucks. Yeah. I would hope for a mandate if Ebola reaches our shores and it's spreading as bad as as COVID. That's a different story than COVID being around for three to four years and people, you know, then putting a mandate on that and people are just like, what? We're all vaccinated and no one's really dying. Then it's poor timing. It's the same action, but the timing is important. If there was a new disease that was killing a lot of people in a different country and now you're getting cases in your country, maybe nip it in the bud early on with a quick mandate before it gets too bad so you don't have to deprive the economy. Just meeting people at the airport then there would be no mandate. It would just be a mandate of people arriving from the airport. You don't, you know, in that way, you don't have to affect the rest of the community. Then that's timing. But then once you let it spread too much and everyone's dying, then that's a very tricky decision on what's the right timing and communicating that message, why it's important. But I think humanity is a very reflexive and responsive creature that when we see so much death, we will give in and we would actually impose mandates because that's what happened in New York City. You didn't need to put a mandate in New York City because so many of us were dying. Somebody knew someone that already died. So everyone put on a mask on their own corner. People cussed you out in New York City if you weren't wearing a mask. And people cuss back and put on their mask and apologize. And it was hilarious. And that's our city. And you don't, you can't tell New Yorkers, do New Yorkers do anything? We're a proud bunch of people, but yet we were still being team player because we already been through 9-11, World Trade Center bombings. We get the social contract that we have to give up a little bit of our freedoms for that security. But it's a dance. We can get that freedom back you know, and later on when things get better, we've always been doing that dance in New York. And I think the rest of the world, it's harder because, you know, not everywhere is like New York where you have to share a small space together. Yeah. It's very interesting in my opinion, but um, no, I just appreciate listening to everything that you're saying and, and absorbing it. Cause the more information that I have, the better, because I'm learning. It, it's good. It's good stuff. So yeah, it's it. It's like the weather. You can't change the weather. You know, it's raining outside, then go inside. But, you know, then it's like, why have to stay inside if it's going to be sunny eventually? Well, then go outside when it's sunny. There's tornadoes outside. Stay inside. But why should I if it's going to be sunny one day? Well, it's not sunny now. 
that's the way we 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 look at mandates and timing and things. So it's timing. Yeah, very true. But um, I want to shift gears and ask you the last couple of questions, if that's all right with you, Cal. Yeah. Because I know it's Love really it. late for you at the moment. Um, and personally, I don't know how you, you're still up. <laughs> no, this <laughs> is 11. It's fine. Right now. But um, my second last question for you is, what do you hope that people get out of this book the most, The Monsoon Diaries? That this is the book that is not about COVID. If you wanted to read about COVID, fine. You can see it through that angle. And I hope you see it as a fly in the wall and you're with there in my journey that it takes you back in time and you can be there right there with me living through it all vicariously as a voyeur and you get an understanding of what was going on truly behind the walls of various emergency departments that I worked in around New York during the first wave and the thinking behind of what we were going through and what was going through our heads. But what I wrote this book to be primarily about is resilience and how that the only constant is change. There are these events that happen in our lives, whether it's a loss of a loved one in my case, or a loss of a job, a rejection, a breakup, a tragedy that appear discrete and unchangeable. And a lot of us feel tethered to be defined by those events. And while that may be true, what makes life interesting is that our attitudes to those very same un seemingly unchangeable events do change over time. And it depends on whether we choose to oppress it and suppress it, which is never the right answer, trying to ignore it and move on without honoring it, it's never the right answer, or to revisit it, to go through the grief process, to be comfortable with the discomfort, to be, uncom to be comfortable with the uncomfortable feelings associated with that event. And then that evolution of those attitudes in that healing process to the very same event, changing as they are, is what defines a person. And to go back to the roller coaster analogy we used, what better way than to enjoy the roller coaster as it's happening in the very present, not caring where it would lead, because at the end of the day, that's how you define what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And in this regard of my writing my book, I want people to just use COVID as this background character vehicle to relate the story, because COVID is something that happened to all of us. So I don't need this book to be picked up by someone that knows what it's like to lose a father or to, has traveled so much. If they can't relate to that, they can at least relate to the experience of sharing a, a, pan, a pandemic together as a generational event. And having that, uh, my lessons that I learned during that time applied to their own lives and what happened in their life that also experienced some of a similar loss and know that they are better off and they can re-examine their lives with greater purpose and clarity, not in spite of that event, but because of it. People can get your copy or get a copy of your book, sorry. Uh, the Monsoon Diaries, is it available anywhere books are sold? Amazon, I'll make sure it's in the link below for everyone in the show notes. Comes out September 27th, which is the same release date as my book, which is pretty cool. We're book launch buddies. Um, yeah. Monsoon when you buy Diaries. The Path of an Eagle, buy sorry. The Monsoon Diaries. Yeah, get both of them. Why not? <laughs> same day. Uh, it's convenient. Two for two, actually. Uh, both great books. Uh, I'm 20 pages in. I promised him that I would read it before uh, it actually comes out. So I'm lucky enough to actually get a copy 
before you get your copy. So yeah, no, I'm ironic. Even though you wrote it. Um, anyway, man, uh, my final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question. I love asking all my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? It depends. Is it going to be a long film or is it going to be a short film? It's up to you, man. I would love to to show that I lived with passion and that every step of the way, at least since my father's death, that I lived knowing that I already had everything I needed to be happy, to be grateful. And everything I did thereafter was just changing my environments to further confirm that I was already where I needed to be. And I was already surrounded by the loved ones I needed to have. And the people that decided to join me in this adventure up until I turned 100 also wanted to join in on the fun and ride this roller coaster with me, not thinking or caring where it was going to lead or what it would look like or where we're going to end up because that didn't matter. The answers don't matter. What the future looks like doesn't matter. What matters is that are we inherently and presently aware that everything that we need is already within our grasp and right underneath our noses. Calvin, man, thank you so much for your time today, your wisdom, your advice, and your story, and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you, Jay. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>